0: One thing that most of us do daily is check the mail. Uh, As you open your mailbox and begin to sort through it, the result is often just another anticlimactic trip to the mailbox. Uh, Another credit card offer, Papa John's is having their next big pizza deal, uh, and bills and more bills is what we often find. There are times, however, as you're walking back to the house and scrolling through your mail, uh, that you find something. And it's addressed to you in pen, and there's a return address also in pen. And as you open it, you see that it's an invitation. This has by far become the highlight of this trip, by the way, has it not? It doesn't matter what the invitation is for, where it's at, or who it is even, you're invited and you're excited. Uh, Oftentimes the invitation is for a wedding, a graduation party, a bridal shower, a baby shower... Uh, And there's an aspect of excitement and anticipation that begin from the moment that you open the seal and see that it's an invitation to this big event. Ladies, you begin to talk about what you're going to get, the gals at the bridal shower and the men begin to get together and talk about what they're going to do while the ladies are at the bridal shower. (laughs) This is a big deal. Well, this evening, I'd like us to consider an event that would have trumped them all. The invitation itself would have been an enormous honor just to receive. This celebration would have brought the most buzz and excitement, perhaps, of a person's entire life. It would have been the sort of event that you would clear the schedule for. Anything else was less important. So to consider this great event, please turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 22. And we'll consider verses 1 through 14. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who had been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his own business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, "'The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast.'" Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. So as we consider this parable this evening, I think it's important to understand the what and why of parables in general. To answer the what, a parable simply put is a fictional story that demonstrates a spiritual truth. You could also say it's an earthly earthly story that reveals a heavenly truth. But the why of parables is equally as important. And in fact, this is the exact question that was asked of Jesus in Matthew 13. So just as an introduction, flip to Matthew 13. And as you're turning there, I'll set the context. Jesus has just spoken in the Sermon on the Mount a few chapters prior. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught very plainly, very directly in a straightforward manner. Coming off of this teaching, there was a great polarization that happened. Believers and unbelievers. And so in Matthew 13, verse 10, we see, And the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so what we see is that those who responded well were now given more revelation, and those who responded in rejection were not given more. The Spirit of God was now working through the use of parables to conceal truth from those hearts who were hard, and yet to continue to reveal it to those who were receptive In all of Jesus' ministry, he would tell 39 parables throughout three years recorded in the four Gospels. And so as we consider the parable back in Matthew 22, we find ourselves in the context of Jesus' third year of ministry. This particular conversation in the parable of the marriage feast would have occurred on either a Tuesday or Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. Now, although there's difficulty in knowing the exact date uh, because of the lack of chronology in some of the Gospels, we do know that it happened on Tuesday or Wednesday. And ironically, this fits in perfectly with where we've been in the study of Mark on Sunday mornings. Two weeks ago, Pastor Brian p- taught on the parable of the tenants out of Mark 12, 1 to 12. And then last week he taught on uh, the passage about paying taxes to Caesar, and that was Mark 12, 13 to 17. And this parable fits right in between those two. Uh, This was a a parable, a a judgment parable, one of the three judgment parables that Jesus told. And Mark only includes one, and that was the parable of the tenants. But Matthew includes all three of them. And so in, in this particular parable, Jesus had just come off of speaking. He's speaking to the leaders in the temple. he had entered the temple and was immediately approached by the religious leaders, and they began to question his authority for teaching. Now what's amazing about Jesus' response is that despite their lack of humility, despite their objectivity in in really discerning what he was saying, whether or not it was true, despite that he still proceeded to tell them three parables where the gospel was clearly laid out and the plan of salvation, uh, the offer of salvation, and yet also the consequences for not believing. And And that's where we lie in this third parable. It's the third of these three parables that he's telling to the religious leaders, uh, in a sense, trying to once and for all get the gospel across to them. And so with that in mind, let's dig in and we'll start in verse two of Matthew 22. It says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. And I'll stop right there for a moment. (laughs) The kingdom of heaven. Interesting phrase, but this would have caught the attention of all. But particularly, it would have caught the attention of the Jewish audience. The kingdom of God was the realm of God's control. And so the kingdom of God is really everything. But the kingdom of heaven in particular was referred specifically to the redeemed people of God. And so to the Jewish listener, they would have felt entitled to the kingdom of heaven. So their attention would have been directly on Jesus' words. The kingdom of heaven. Uh, furthermore, by opening with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is going, going to describe what heaven is like. He's going to describe what's going to take place in heaven or how God is going to act when we get to heaven. And so this is a very, it intrigues me a lot as I look at this. It, what he goes on to say is the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now in this parable, the king is obviously God the father and the son is Jesus, Jesus. And it says that the king is going to give a wedding for his son. Now, it's important to note that weddings in this day were very special. In fact, if you remember, Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding. And in Near Eastern marriages, uh, the process would consist of three stages. There would be the betrothal stage, the presentation stage, and the celebration stage. The wedding ceremony itself would have been private, but the celebration would have been open to all who were invited. It would have been a much more public event. Such a wedding feast would have been a huge celebration, and in this case, in a royal wedding, it would have lasted up to a full week of celebration. Uh, the, the groom of the father, or the father of the groom, in this case the king, uh, he would have provided all... Everything that was needed, all provisions he provided. So food, uh, sleeping arrangements, water. And in this case, to be at a royal wedding, there was actually garments that were required to be there. Now what's important to note though is that these garments were part of the invitation. They were provided by the king and in fact they would have had the king's emblem on the shoulder or or the chest somewhere uh, in a sense to be your your ticket of entry. You had to have on the right garments in order to be at the wedding. You may remember... uh, (laughs) Prince William, uh, just to kind of demonstrate the excitement of, such, of event, such an event. Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, married Kate Middleton in 2011, and the grandeur and excitement of this royal wedding resulted in 2 billion people watching from around the world. Right? This, is, this is maybe the closest thing that we can get to to understanding the excitement that would have been surrounding the event of the king's son being married. Everyone would have wanted to be there. And so, as I just even pause at this point and I think about the spiritual implications of this parable, what an event that we are invited to. Jesus is telling us of the grandest of all celebrations, and we're invited. That's good news. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of the spiritual implication of this, listed several reasons why one ought to want to be at this event. He said one, it's a marriage feast or a celebration, two, it's a royal celebration. Three, it was a divine, it's going to be a divine celebration. And four, we are guests of honor. And not only guests of honor, but we are the bride of the bridegroom. In these times and in this day, there was no greater event than a marriage celebration. And so naturally, verse three, says that he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. Just to make clear, uh, The point Jesus is nailing out here is that those who had been invited are the Jews. Uh, They had previously been invited because throughout the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen nation, not because they were more in number than people or more holy or any other reason than God's sovereign choice. And so, time and time again, we see God delivering them, calling them to repentance, um, forgiving them, chastening them. Israel was his chosen people. But there came a time in biblical history. When he began to speak through the prophets of one who would come as a redeemer, as a savior, as a messiah. And so what we see in this parable is that these slaves, they were sent out, not giving a new invitation, not a first time invitation, but they were simply proclaiming to God's chosen people that which had been previously promised. They were proclaiming that the time was at hand. And, and even if I, if I just think about this for a moment, Jesus came as a Jew to the people of Israel. And now it was time to receive their promised salvation. Just as Jesus came on the scene in Mark one fifteen saying, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand, so these slaves are illustrated as proclaiming this good news. The kingdom was at hand. How exciting it should have been for the people to hear this great news. The Savior was finally here. But as we move to the next point in this parable, we see that the invitation was rejected. Look at verse 3 again. It says he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. You know, it's interesting to note here that it doesn't say that they could not come, but it says that they would not come. Such willful refusal is true of anyone who does not come to Jesus for life. And in fact, just one chapter later in Matthew 23 Verse 37, Jesus is overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Again, in John 5, 40, Jesus says, you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. In both of these scenarios, we see Jesus' heart for men and women and yet their refusal to receive him. As we consider this refusal, I can't help but think about things from the king's perspective. The humiliation that, would have, that he would have felt. The undermining of his generosity in extending an invite. Not to mention a slight against his importance and majesty. It's my opinion that this king would have had every right to have not only never allowed them to enter his palace again, but to potentially even have killed them on the spot because of defaming his name and character. And yet the king in this parable shows more grace. We see the love and patience of our God in verse 4. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who had been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The dinner was ready. They had nothing to do except for to come. It was free of charge or expense, and now we see not just an invite, but a plea from the king to come. As a side note, this parable is illustrating the end of the church age, um, the end of the age that we're in. It was an illustration to show uh, the end times banquet that's throughout scripture, particularly in Revelation. Um, This event where we will be with Christ is portrayed by this marriage feast. Uh, We'll be unified with him and then we'll go on reigning with him for a thousand years. Jesus will be the means to getting to this feast and he'll also be the center of worship at the feast. And we will enter not only as a, as a chosen uh, guest, but as the bride. No wonder Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is the same marriage supper here. What a glorious privilege. And yet, how did the people respond? Well, look at verse 5. It says, But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his own business. And here we see those who will make excuses. Although they're not aggressive towards the invitation and calling of the king, they certainly exercise a passive rebellion against his rule. And so they all alike begin to make excuses. One went to his farm, another went to his business. In other words, their financial status, their financial gain was more important than the things of God. And you know what I see is that many will give priority to their jobs over things of the Lord. Many will give priority to their financial security over things of the Lord. Many will give priority to their own entertainment and leisure over things of the Lord. And in fact, to demonstrate this radically unintelligible nature, the radically unintelligible nature of these excuses, flip over to Luke. And I just, I want to show these because it's a similar parable. And I think that that's the point that's being driven home in these excuses. In Luke chapter 14... Verse 18, again, a similar parable, but a little bit different. Um, We see men making excuses. Luke 14, verse 18, it says, But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. Again, I I say that somewhat humorously because I think that's the point that's being driven home in these parables. The first guy says that he's got to go look at his land. Well, for one, would he not have viewed the land before buying it? And was it really that pressing to where he couldn't go to the feast and return to it later? I think not. Uh, The second man says that he's bought five yoke of oxen and he needs to try them out. Well, undoubtedly, to buy oxen in this day, you would have tried them out before buying them. Uh, Furthermore, could it not wait until after the the week of celebration uh, for the wedding? Again, and and so the third one is the most humorous of all. I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And to the listener, they probably would have laughed out loud at this point, uh, because in this culture, the woman did not dictate what the man was doing, but quite the opposite. Um, The man decided where the family would go and what they would do, and uh, not the woman. And so all of these seemingly absurd illustrations seem to nail home the point, and that is this. Here's the truth of this matter. That people will make any excuse they can to avoid the Lord. Right? How often do we see this today, brothers and sisters? The number of excuses and reasons for avoiding the Lord are truly infinite. There's a great game on. I've got to mow the lawn. We've got company in town. It's raining outside. Right? You've experienced this before. Trying to get someone to come to church or Bible study or to meet with them for coffee can seem nearly impossible. And it's not necessarily that they hate Jesus or they hate Christians or they hate church. They just have other priorities in their lives. In many scenarios, it's like Matthew 13, The one hears the word, but the worries of the world and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. And I, th- I think a helpful analogy would be to imagine someone bringing two Super Bowl tickets, sideline passes, expenses covered, travel, hotel uh, all that, and, and they offer them to you, and let's say you're a football fan, even if you're not, and you say, oh, man, that, you know, that looks great, but I've got to mow the lawn this weekend. Or maybe in Bozeman, I've got to shovel the walk this weekend. There are. Uh, this is an absurd example, and yet how much greater is the celebration that we're seeing here and the, the type of excuses just don't even match up? It doesn't make sense. And I think that that's the whole point, is that it doesn't make sense. But what we see from these guests is is a rebellious, a passively rebellious heart. And so if you return to Matthew 22, in verse 5, we see those who are passively rebellious. And verse 6 says, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. So if if 5 is the passively rebellious, now in 6 we see the actively rebellious or the aggressively rebellious. Not only do they refuse to come, but now they're killing the messengers of the king. Again, I've got the two Super Bowl tickets, and I offer them free of charge, no strings attached. And then the, the recipient says, how dare you offer me these and begins to harass and persecute and harm me. That's the exact scene that we see going on here. And yet we see this in the world today. It's almost hard to even understand because it's not even like we're bringing a message of bad news. We're bringing a message of good news that's free, and yet does our world not hate the gospel? Throughout church history, we've seen we've seen people killed for thousands of years now, at least two thousand. Jesus undoubtedly had John the Baptist and the apostles in mind as he told this parable. John the Baptist, the forerunner for the Messiah, would be beheaded for his proclamation of repentance. 10 of the 11 remaining apostles were killed for their faith, and the 11th was persecuted severely. They saw hostility towards the gospel. They lived this reality. And brothers and sisters, such will be true of Christians as well. In John 15:19, Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And so we see that the world will hate those in Christ. That's just the simple fact of the matter. But in verse 7, we see God respond. We see the king respond. It says, but the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And here we see the wrath of God being revealed. This is a reminder to us that though he is patient, his patience will come to an end. And judgment is never a fun topic to consider, but it is a reality and it is just. In both cases we've considered thus far, the passively rebellious and the actively rebellious, they have both equally denied God and rebelled against him, making them worthy of punishment. A preview of this judgment occurred in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Roman Empire invaded Jerusalem led by Titus. Uh, This began in 67 and carried through, like I said, AD 70. Josephus recorded for us uh, the results of the aftermath, aftermath when he said, The dead bodies of strangers were mingled together with those of their own country and those of profane persons with those of priests. And the blood of all sorts of dead carcasses stood in lakes in the holy courts themselves. This is a tragedy, and yet this is exactly what these people have asked for by denying the Lord. By dishonoring the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger, he is patience, but he is patient, but his patience eventually will run out. And he worked through the Roman Empire in order to carry out his judgment in Jerusalem. Now what's interesting is that within Matthew 22, there is certainly an aspect in which Jesus is foreshadowing this event. Right? This is forty years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And yet, there is undoubtedly also a reference to when God will exercise judgment at an even larger scale. Just as he did in the earlier days, so he will do in the end times, in the abomination of desolation, and during the tribulation period, uh, when he will exercise judgment at an even larger scale. To understand this better, flip over to Luke uh, chapter 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke. In chapter 21, this passage elaborates on this in a helpful way. And we'll start in verse twenty. <clears throat> it says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, undoubtedly, this is also referring to the invasion of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire in AD 70, and yet it is also very clearly talking about the end times as well. I want to key in on that verse 24, where it says, Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And this truly, beloved, is is an incredible statement, because here's why. This is occurring right now. We are in the time period where the Gentile church is being brought to fruition. And as soon as this time period is over, the end times events will begin. God will turn again to his dealings with Israel. If we think about these in light of the characters, the passive rebellion and the active rebellion in Matthew 22, this brings about a great fear in my heart for them. This will not be a pleasing time when God shows his judgment they will essentially reap what they've sown and they will one day realize that they were wrong, but it will be too late. And so if we return to Matthew 22, the story continues in verse 8. It says, Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And so now we see that the invitation is offered to all. And something very significant has occurred in this story that I just alluded to. But the king has attempted to bring in those who were originally invited, and now he opens it up to all who will come. And at a spiritual level, what's happened is the kingdom has transitioned from being only of the Jews to including the Gentiles as well. Now, in the day that we live in, Jews and Gentiles alike are brought to salvation by the same exact means. Romans 1.16 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So if we look at verse 8, it says, Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. In other words, the gospel is available now. I think of the verse that says, Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day. Today, the feast is ready. The offer is open to all. And as soon as they will come, they will be with the king. This text also tells us that the first guests were not ready. They weren't worthy. And so he commands his servants to go to the main highways and as many as they find to invite them. We see that in verse 9. Go to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Now what's interesting about the main highways is that the people found here would have been poor. They probably would have been wanderers. They certainly would not have been natural to the city. They wouldn't have naturally fit in. And they certainly, even more so, would not have been uh, adequately prepared for a wedding feast of a king's son. But the gracious king extends his offer to all. And I think it's safe to say, if we consider the truth that's being taught here, really none of us are naturally born ready for the kingdom. None of us are are born uh, ready to sit with the king at his table. And yet he graciously extends the same offer to us as well. He's reached out to the outer streets to anyone who will come. What an incredible offer. What a gracious king. And so it says in verse 10 the slaves went out to the outer streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And this was a celebration, like I said, that was open to all. It makes me think of 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 9 to 11. We see somewhat of a laundry list of sins. He says, Paul says to the Corinthians, Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. It almost seems as though Paul is laboring to create a laundry list of sins in order to set up verse 11 where he says that they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the truth that we see throughout all Scripture that all who will come are welcome. There's no distinction between uh, the moral and the immoral. There's no distinction between man or woman, white or black, rich or poor. But we see complete impartiality from our God. Complete goodness from our God and complete grace that is undeserved. Now what's even more incredible to me is that as I look at this parable, I have to ask the question, who are the messengers? Who are the messengers? And the answer is that the messengers are the slaves of the king. They're the same pool of people that he was drawing from that sent the original invitation, right? Guys like John the Baptist, the apostles. And yet now we see more messengers going out. And the answer is this, Are we not called slaves of the Most High? Are we not called servants of our God? Christians, we are the messengers in this parable. The incredible truth that the Lord not only calls us in, but that he sends us out bearing his name and his likeness ought to compel us to such service. He commissions us into service as his representatives, and we, in a sense, become his ambassador, his spokesperson. We go to the outer ends of the world and to the outer streets. Okay, before moving on, uh, look at verse 8. In verse 8, it says, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. And yet in verse 10, it says that the slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And my question is, then, what makes one worthy? If some weren't found worthy, but evil people and good people both are invited in, then is this a contradiction or what what makes one worthy? Well, let's look at verse 11. It says, But the king came in to look over the dinner guests, and he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And so we see the final consideration that the invitation must be properly received. According to verse 11, what makes us worthy? Well, the wedding clothes do. And remember, the invitation, the entry to the wedding would have included wedding clothes. It would have included the garments of the king to be the right of entry. And so you could say, what makes us worthy or what makes us right before the king, righteous before the king, is to have the right clothes on. And really, this is a theme that we see throughout Scripture linking garments or clothing with right standing before God. Listen to a few examples here. In Zechariah 3, Zechariah is having a vision of Joshua the high priest. And in verse 3 he says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. In Isaiah 61, verse 10, Isaiah says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And in Revelation 7, verse 13 through 15, we see, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. In all of these examples, we see a righteousness that is foreign, a righteousness that is alien to the subject, a righteousness that is imputed from God. The picture of garments is the best way to illustrate this profound truth that we are now clothed. Those in Christ are clothed in garments that aren't their own. They're clothed in a righteousness that makes them worthy. But in verse 12, unfortunately, we see the third group of people in this parable. He says, Friend, how'd you come in here without the wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And these are those who are trusting in their own righteousness. They've openly rejected the righteousness of God and they're trusting in their own. Verse 12 says that he was speechless because he had no excuse. He knew that the wedding clothes were free. They were offered freely with the invitation and yet he had arrogantly refused them and attempted to enter with his own garments. And friends, how can we not think of so many people in our own lives who are this way? They reject the free offer of Christ and they bring their own deeds and supposed righteousness to God. The man in this parable represents all those who seek to establish their own righteousness. And the sin of self-righteousness, unfortunately, is a severe one with severe consequences. Unfortunately for them, that is. Listen to these few passages and what they have to say regarding this. Galatians 2.21, Paul says to the Galatians, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Galatians five four says you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. And in Romans 10.1, Paul speaking of his Jewish brethren. He says, Brother in My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The consequences of this are severe. We see from Jesus that many will enter the gate that leads to destruction. And Satan's influence in religion in particular will deceive many into establishing a righteousness of their own from even their own religious deeds. The sad reality reality is that although they acknowledge God and even at times have a zeal for God, It is not according to true knowledge because they have not found their righteousness in the Son of God. As a consequence, they've nullified the grace of God. They've fallen from grace. They've been severed from Christ. Their most righteous deeds have become filthy rags before the Lord. They've spat in the face of the cross to us to say, Jesus, I don't need you that much. I can do a lot of this on my own. And because of this blatant rebellion, verse 13 tells us what will occur. It says, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The actively rebellious, the passively rebellious, and those who establish their own righteousness will all enter the same place, which is outer darkness. It's called the furnace of fire. It's called hell. Second Thessalonians 1 and Jude both say that hell is made for Satan and his demons, that it's reserved for apostates, and yet some will choose to go there by their own choice. Their refusal to submit to God will result in their separation from him. While closing out this parable, verse 14 says, Many are called, for many are called, but few are chosen. And this is a great tension of scripture that we see summarized in this one verse, and we take it by faith. On one hand, you have a passage like Matthew 3, 2, where John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we see here the general call to salvation to anyone who will believe. The text says, many are called. In fact, we see God's will in this in 2 Peter 3, 9, that he wills that none should perish. Many will have opportunities. And yet on the flip side of this verse 14, the beautiful thing about it is that we know true faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. He keeps us in the faith. We're sealed by His grace and goodness. And for true believers, we're continually sanctified and will one day experience the consummation of our salvation when we're in heaven with Him and when we're at this exact event that we're studying here in Matthew 22. Believers' salvation is fully because of God's grace. And yet, to those who are separated from Him for eternity, it will be because of their own refusal. To receive salvation. In closing, there are four types of people in the whole world that I see popping out of this parable those who are apathetic towards the gospel or passively rebellious, those who are hostile towards the gospel or actively rebellious, those who are self righteous, and those who will enter the kingdom by faith. The first two, a lot of times, know what they're doing, and sometimes they're even willing to pay the price if they're wrong but I desperately am afraid for those in the third group. I fear that just as in the days of Noah before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 38 and 39. The real question that we have to ask ourselves here is, which person are you? I don't want to assume that just because you're here tonight means that you're a born-again Christian. Ask yourself, have I fully and solely trusted in Christ as my righteousness? Not faith in Jesus plus works, not faith in Jesus and faith in my religious activity or my church attendance or being a good person, but solely and, and fully placing faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the requirement. To ask us another way, are your robes white in the blood of the Lamb? Because as we've seen from this parable, you can't wear one set of garments and the other. You must choose. So with that, would you bow your heads with me and I'll pray. Lord, what a powerful text that we see. A powerful parable told by our Lord Jesus. Um, Lord, there's so many things to reflect on in this as we consider uh, the warnings against those who rebel against God, Lord, the warnings against self-righteousness. Lord, even for this body, I pray that you would protect us uh, from creeping into self-righteousness, Lord. We want our standing, our contentment, our identity to be fully and solely in the person and work of Jesus. Lord, for those who don't know him personally, who have not trusted in this righteousness that is imputed from God, Uh, Lord, we pray together that they would do so uh, soon, Lord, even now in the quietness of their own heart. Lord, what a gracious offer you've extended, free of charge. Lord, you just ask us to come. Lord, for believers, uh, we are reminded of the wonderful truth of the gospel. Lord, we are reminded of the excellent celebration that we will be a part of. Uh, when we go home. Lord, further, we are reminded that we are called into service, God, as your messengers, called to go to the outer places, Lord, the outer streets, Lord, the outer parts of the world, God, to reach our community where we're at, Lord, and that Christians would do so everywhere on this planet, God. We are reminded that we are called as your ambassadors, as your servants, Lord. So I pray for the believers that we would be Encouraged by this, Lord, that we would be spurred on towards service in your name. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.